0: Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about a Trojan asteroid with the same signature as the Moon. Uh, just a bonkers month for astronomy. Uh, the first fa- fast radio burst seen in our backyard, Europa glowing in the dark, and maybe more. We have no idea if people are going to be able to see that. See this live um joining me this week you're on my screen right now pam hoffman hey pam how's it going awesome
1: thanks so much and happy veterans day everybody
0: it's and and we have remembrance day here in canada
1: ah very good okay yeah that's a u.s thing
0: yeah yeah but it's the same it's the same thing a a day that we take a break and think about all of the all the veterans who sacrifice themselves for canada for queen and, and country awesome um all right, we've also got uh, Dr. Brian Koberlein. Brian. Hi,
2: everybody. Good to be back.
0: Good to have you. Oh, everyone's shifted down. I think it was... There we go. All right, you're, you're more balanced now. Um, and we've got a new co-host this week, although she's not going to be new to everybody, and that's Molly uh, Wickling. Molly, welcome Hello. to the Weekly Space Hangout. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And uh, for people who don't know, let's get the, uh, the introduction. Who are you?
3: So uh, I am a PhD student at University of California, Berkeley, studying uh, neutrino physics in particular. And I've been doing astrophotography for about the last five years and have been a super fan of astronomy since basically forever.
0: So I I didn't know. uh, I mean, you've been just a font of knowledge for the uh, for the virtual star parties, but I didn't know that your specific background was in neutrino research.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm only a second year student, so I don't have a whole lot of time under my belt yet. But um, uh, that's uh, what my research is especially is going to be in uh, with the uh, the SnowPlus collaboration um, with the SnowPlus neutrino detector up in Canada.
0: That's the one in Sudbury.
3: Yes, one in Sudbury.
0: Right. Okay.
3: Deep underground.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you haven't right. had a chance to go down to IceCube yet.
3: No. I, oh, I go to IceCube would be super cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My my group we're, we don't do uh, work with Ice Cube in particular, but um, uh, it's it'd be cool to see that someday too.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's on my bucket list. Brian, is that on your was that on your list of of big observatories to go
2: visit? Oh sure, yeah. Just send me down to Antarctica; I'd be happy to go.
0: Yeah, well, but you know, on your big science show. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. That's got to be on Season the list. Two. Season two. <laughs> Season two. Right. All right. Well, before we get on to this week's guest. I just want to uh, remind all of you uh, to go and join the Weekly Space Hangout crew. This is the incredible community that surrounds us and joins us here uh, on the Weekly Space Hangout. So um, they are our executive producers. They are fans. They are our friends. And uh, it's just one of the best communities you can be a part of. So if you want to join this, go to wshcrew.space. Go there, they'll give you the instructions, how to become an executive producer of the show, and then you can bring on cool special guests. And speaking of special guests, this week, we've got Amy Ross from NASA. Amy, welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout.
4: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. This is new for me.
0: (laughs) A Zoom meeting? Have you you missed 2020? No.
4: No, the weekly
1: space hangout. Oh, very okay, much. all right,
0: all right. I've, I was thought that maybe you, you somehow shifted from some, you know, other dimension or something, but no, no, that that does make sense. No, I've adapted. Yeah, we all have. Yeah. Um, well, so who are you, and and what do you do?
4: Right, I am. Um, I'm located at the NASA Johnson Space Center down here in Houston, Texas, and I am the Pressure Garment Subsystem Lead for the Exploration Extravehicular Activity Unit. So I basically I work on the people shaped part of spacesuits. That's what I do.
0: The the people shaped part of spacesuits. Right. Yes.
4: Versus <laughs> the big, giant, heavy backpack. That's another guy.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I see. I understand. Yeah. I understand. All right. So uh, this is great. I mean we are you know, we're in this transition time. I mean, obviously, I think everybody is familiar with the Aces suits that the people wore when they flew on the space shuttle, the orange suits. We're familiar with the, the, the suits that the astronauts wear as they fly, as they head outside the International Space Station. Um, I've got to assume that as people are planning to go back to the moon, there, someone is thinking, well, what's everybody going to wear?
4: Yeah, I'm, I'll tell you, but I gotta let my cat in real quick.
0: Sure, yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. absolutely.
1: <laughs> like,
0: oh, and I didn't I, the
1: latest fashion.
0: Yeah, yeah, we we stopped this show for cats, no question.
4: Space kitties. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but he's very loud.
1: otherwise
0: oh, She muted herself. Um, you muted yourself. I can unmute. There we go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so
4: um, yeah, my job is and has been for a long time is developing new spacesuits. So there's a group that works on the current spacesuit that flies on the International Space Station, the Extravehicular Activity Mobility Unit, or EMU. Mhm. ISS EMU, right? And there's also another team that works on the crew survival suits, like the ACES, Um and now the next one's going to be called the Orion Crew Survival Suit or Ox. But I work on EVA, extravehicular activity suits, so the suits you wear when you go outside of your vehicle um, exclusively, and uh, been focused on planetary configurations for most of my career.
0: That is the coolest thing ever. So specifically, you're focused on building spacesuits for people who are going to be walking around on other worlds. Yeah what I do. (laughs) So what did we learn then from the Apollo missions that will has informed your designs?
4: One of the key things I think to keep in mind is that that suit did three jobs in one piece of hardware basically. So it was one of those crew survival suits, you know, like the, like the aces that you did launch and landing in and emergency situations. It was also a planetary surface EVA suit, right? So you went outside and bounced around the moon and also, in you know some changes, just minor, they did um, microgravity spacewalks in that suit as well. So we tried during the constellation program, which was a few years ago, kind of the two, 2005 to kind of, and, I don't know, 11 kind of time frame, to try to mush all those together again, um, all those jobs, but increase all of the capabilities in each of those jobs. Well, it's like if you want to um, build a Formula One race car and have a very capable dump truck. Um, if you try to mush those two together, yeah, uh, there's going to be compromises.
0: It's possible you're <laughs> describing is- a previous space vehicle. But anyway, well, let's talk about spacesuits. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so when... when so, what are the roles then? I mean you've got the i guess what the people and you mentioned this that there's the orion right so there's the people that are wearing a suit when they're in the Orion capsule, and that's not your specialty but the but you're but you're saying that 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 there was the plan to potentially merge those together that you would wear the same thing in different situations and that and people have been talked out of that
4: yeah. Well, and so we tried to do that during Constellation because there's just some benefits, right? If you only have to keep, take one suit on a mission, it saves volume, it saves mass. All those things are really important to spaceflight. Um, but the difficulty is, is they also wanted to improve performance on all fronts. Well, uh, when you compromise, you definitely then sacrifice some performance. And so you you couldn't combine those functions in one piece of hardware. So that's why the Orion capsule has a crew survival suit specific. And then we are getting to build a specific EVA suit for planetary surface. Now that suit will also be capable of doing microgravity EVAs as well, because we'll take it to the International Space Station, probably try it there first. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've done some testing on the ground to show that this configuration is fully capable doing microgravity EVAs without compromising too much of its configuration toward, you know, away from planetary surface EVAs. So and, when you separate the cruise job and the EVA job, you can right. do a much better job
0: on each. And and so what are the, I guess, the primary requirements that you're looking to accomplish with with a, with this suit?
4: Yeah, well, so most of my career I've been, with, I didn't have a specific mission. So I was focused on, you know, what's kind of the big job? And the big job is a Mars mission. I mean, you think about a Mars mission, and if you, you know, watched or read the Martian, you know that the unexpected happens, and you've got to be able to deal with it. And so in that case, we try to provide the human with as much human capability as they have unsuited suited. And so mobility is a big deal. And so when we're looking to build this moon suit for the 2024 missions and, and then following lunar missions, we're trying to think forward to that Mars situation. So we're trying to provide as much human capability in this initial go um, so that if you need to kneel, you can kneel and pick something up, which they really couldn't do during the Apollo program. And they fell a lot, and part of that was on purpose because that was the easiest way to pick something up, which
0: is just terrible. fall over. It, it
4: was <laughs> right flat, <right. laughs> and they did. Right. If you watch it again and again, it's like, oh, I gotta, you know, get down there. Um, and then if you, you know, want to really walk and be capable of walking for greater distances uh, or more routinely, then again, more natural walkings needed. More right. stable walking is needed. Less falls are a good thing, right? Those kinds of things are what we're focused on.
0: And I mean, the conditions are—I mean, the gravity is different. So I—I I wonder. I mean, if you are on the moon, you can support more spacesuit with your with your muscles than potentially on Mars. But also, you have this awful dust. So, do the does that change the requirements at all between the moon and Mars? <laughs>
4: yeah so suit design is predicated on where you're going and what you're doing right the where you're going part is you know all those environmental constraints <clears throat> and then the what you're doing part is you know what kinds of activities do you need to be able to accomplish the more you know about each of those things the better you can design right so you know if i'm it's like packing for a vacation if I know I'm going to the beach in Fiji where the temperature's this and I'm going to be doing these activities you know then you know exactly what to pack Well, same thing, the more we know about where you're going and what you're doing, the better we can design the suits. And so we pay attention to all those things. So we're learning a lot about, you know, one of the fun things about my job is I'm always learning about all these different things. Um, I know a little bit about moon dust. I know a little bit about Mars dust. I know a little bit about vehicle dynamics. I know a little bit about geology tools. I know a little bit about how to do field geology. I know about my fabrics. I know about, you know, um, my life support system. All those different things is part of what makes my job fun.
0: Yeah. Um, Now you brought some pictures and uh, and yep. normally I try to talk people out of this, but these pictures are awesome. So um, <laughs> why don't we uh, take a look and I will okay. I'll, I'll share the, I don't know if you can see, there you go. So it might be backwards, but don't worry. Yeah. So So where do you want to go?
4: Yeah. So that, that slide there just basically said, um, kind of what I've been saying. Space suits, well, when you think about them, some people think of them as more like a costume. <laughs> or a a uniform, but really it's a life support system. That's what keeps you alive. And then we have to think about, again, where you're going and what you're doing when we try to keep you alive. And then our suits that we're building are gonna look different than what you're used to seeing. Mm -hmm. And so if you scroll down to that slide, yeah, that's a rear entry walking configuration suit. Hmm. And so it has a lot of um, mobility features, a lot of bearings, basically, that allow rotation of a pressure garment. So that as you move, um, you know, it's like when you twist a balloon, right, and you let it go, it goes right back to the same shape it was. Well, so you're inside of the balloon. So if you don't give a bearing there so that you can move that joint, um, you're always fighting the suit, which is what they had to do during the Apollo program.
0: Right, were right. Making it
4: easier to move. And you can see there we address that dust is something we have to pay attention to because with all those bearings and then yeah. putting in it in a dusty environment, you have to keep the dust out of those bearings so it can move. And this is a series of different suits that we've looked at over time, trying to understand uh, a good way to design a planetary surface suit. And each of these suits has some different features uh, associated with it, different things we tried out, um, different construction techniques, sometimes different materials. And so the Z2 there, the gray suit on the end, uh, is the suit that is the most is the closest to the, how we're moving forward okay. going onto the moon. Yeah, and we I got can... the Mark III back in 1989, and we got the Z2 in 2015.
0: Right, right.
4: And this is just another, you know, time lane, time line that shows you kind of that that time.
0: And so those are all the different spacesuits that people wear.
4: Yeah. So you know, that, there's that orange suit. That's the Aces suit that yeah. you were talking about. Yeah, the EMU uh, standing next to the Apollo suit, right? And then the shuttle um, station EMU, same, you know, same basic thing is, is there with the red stripes on the legs. The Mark III, that first prototype we had um, in my picture before, is there uh, next to her. And then there's you know, some of the other suits. The blue suit is uh, another cruise survival kind of suit. And then the suit on the end is the Russian cruise survival. That's
0: a Sokol suit, right? The Sokol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Excellent. And this, this is interesting. This is just, so, this idea a, of, of going yeah. in to the back of the suit. That that requires some. Why uh, do you
4: think we do that?
0: <laughs> less less things to put on. Well, one well, one place to close up.
4: Well, well, there's still a helmet and gloves to put on, and you know the other suit just click, um connects at the waist versus
0: a rear hat. All right, I have a theory. I have a theory. So which is, it is easier? Okay. No, you attach it to the outside of your spaceship, and that way you don't have to go in and out of an airlock.
4: That is a potential option, but you, that's not what drove the suit. This okay. suit design was driven to be rear-entry based on mobility. Right. So have you ever tried to put your shirt on without unbuttoning it? And you know, <laughs> get up in it, right? And you get stuck, don't you? Well, if you do a waist-entry suit where you have to kind of get your shoulders up through there, you have to move the shoulder bearings of the suit out away from where you really want them to be. So when you do a rear entry suit, you can keep those shoulder bearings where you want them. So you can get full range of motion in your shoulder. And that means that, you know, you aren't compromising the shoulder mobility just for the donned off. So then the rear hatch is the way to get in to leave those shoulder bearings where they're most mobile, basically.
0: That's really cool. Um, (laughs) And then I don't know if there was a video there, didn't come through.
4: There is. Um uh yeah, but not on the
0: PDF. <laughs> yeah. It's too big to send. Yeah. Um good. So uh let's go back to you then and mm-hmm. shift that. So so I guess I mean at this point it's funny, like when people talk about the uh when they talk about the artist mission and they're like are we still going to make it for 2024 i'm like well hopefully but there's like a giga- a checklist the length of which you can you can't even wrap your head around and i talk about how are they going to eat where are they going go to the bathroom and what are they going to drink and then i say and what are they going to wear uh so so do you feel confident at this point that that you know what they're going to wear and you've got their got their outfits on track
4: We were doing really well. Um, but right now because of our budget situation, we're under continuing resolution and, uh, that we expected to go up multiple times in our budget amount this year to be able to meet our schedule. And, uh, that's not happening right now. So we had to say it last year's budget level, which was lower. Right. And so that does slow us down. Um, But sometimes that's not all bad because then you get to breathe and think a little bit Mm -hmm. and make sure that you're making some of those decisions and get a little more coordinated, a little more organized because they just, you know, started the human landing systems project not too long ago. And so a lot, they got, they were ramping up and we were, we were blowing and going. And so now we're trying to do a lot of that coordination between the two. Um, There's a lot of interfaces that we have to deal with. Correct. And and so that's, we're going to do more of that talking now.
0: It's an, it's an interesting challenge that, like, you get into a spaceship on Earth and then you fly out to space and then you transfer to potentially a spaceship that's flying around the moon or near the moon. And then you get into a different spaceship and you go down to the surface of the moon and then maybe you get out into a different spaceship. And then if you want to leave your spaceship, you put on a tiny little spaceship at every point, you're just shifting from, from enclosed environment, personal, you know, from larger spaceship to smaller spaceship, depending on the need. I mean, each one of those has its risks and its, and its, and its downsides. It sounds like it's, it's a tricky problem that's going to be forever uh, causing us grief as we try to explore space.
4: Yeah, um, we take that very seriously and we manage that very carefully. Um, I'm on, I don't know, <laughs> our probably probably up in the 80s, 80 hours or better of safety reviews, just this go, right? We had an earlier phase and we're in the review of, of safety review, um, another phase. And so we go through each thing that can happen. And we talk about it and we talk about how we're controlling it and how we're verifying those controls are in place so that we can minimize the amount of risk that we're taking. But there, you know, there is a risk. I mean, you walk out your door, there's a risk, <laughs> right? But, you know, now we're sending humans into a environment that we are not in any way, shape, or form adapted yeah. to live yeah, in. Different risks. And, uh, you know, like you said, we're a little bitty spaceship and, uh, you know, we're going – sending people out in it and we have to make sure that spaceship does its job
0: but but it's like you have to pack everything that the human being needs to survive every part of the spaceship needs to be in this suit the heating the cooling the 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 oxygen nutrition the nutrition water a a way to keep (laughs) the the sweat off your face a way to scratch your nose i mean just everything is has to be part of this of this tiny little spaceship and so it's you know, I sort of imagine your job is just as complicated as the person who's designing the Orion, but it's also smaller. <laughs> oh, right. In
4: some ways, I, I feel like it's more complicated because um, it does seem small enough that you can kind of wrap your hands around it. I mean, literally, <laughs> because when you're designing a vehicle, you know, there's somebody is putting it all together, but you usually have a smaller piece of it. I have the entire pressure garment and that's mine. And then that... Connects up with a life support system, and then you have a spacesuit. And yep. so there's just, you know, two leads that are responsible for the two major parts of this spaceship. And it, so it is a big job. Yeah. There's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's fun. It keeps you occupied. <laughs>
0: oh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, well, uh, if people want to follow the work that you're doing, uh, where should they go?
4: So at, toward the end of those slides, I have a couple links that you can go.
0: Okay, we'll put those um, in the show notes. There's
4: this, Yep, there's a suit up link. And then um, a lot of our technical work is published at the International Conference on Environmental Systems. Yep. And so that's available to the public for free. You just go to the conference proceedings and look up papers about our spacesuits and you can see what we're doing.
0: Wonderful. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, very inspiring work. And I cannot wait to see one of these on the moon or Mars
4: or both. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait either. I'm excited. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much.
4: Yep. Yeah, thank you,
0: Fraser. Bye. All right. Let's move on to the news portion of the episode. Um, uh, Molly, we'll give you a break, uh, but uh, so you can see how it's done. Uh, we'll start with uh, with Pam, because Pam, I'm excited oh. about all the really cool uh, space stuff to look at this week. What's this yes. month? Lots to what be do you got grateful for, for. Lots
1: to be grateful for this month. You can see all five of the bright planets, and the bright planets are the ones that are visible naked eye. Uh, that would be, and I'll just go through them like evening and then into morning, um, east to west. We see Mars, Saturn, and then Jupiter. So if you're you know kind of facing southish in the from the northern hemisphere, you'll see Mars far to your left, and then you'll see Saturn and Jupiter heading west. They're kind of like like the sun does. It sets. Uh, And Mars is going to be up most of the night for the whole month. Uh, You'll watch Saturn and Jupiter kind of get closer and closer. And in fact, in December, they're going to be like on top of each other. I think it's less than a degree apart. Isn't that uh, what you've seen?
3: I'm uh, I'm going to image that. It's they're close up together. I'm going to be able to image it in my eight inch McCassey grain. uh, Wow. December 21st when they're real close together. I'm like super, super excited about that. Very, (laughs) very. Cool. And it's, and it's not, it doesn't happen very often. So absolutely. If you
1: just do one thing this year. Yes. Oh, and look at that in December. Well, um, but I like feel the... like
0: we've been talking about this for like more than a year now, Pam. And this is it. We're almost there. We've almost, <laughs> almost. arrived.
1: Almost. But yeah. before then, uh, like on the 13th, and, and this is a telescopic object, Jupiter and Pluto will be together. So Jupiter is a really great kind of guide to find these dim things, that's going to be kind of in the south, uh, and then on the 14th there, there's a comet in the sky, uh, Comet C-2020M3 Atlas. Uh, its closest approach is going to be on the 14th. Now this is something you're going to want to binoculars for, and you should probably find try and find some dark skies for that. It's not a naked eye object. That would be looking in the east. Now, November the 19th, um, Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto, and the moon are in conjunction. Again, Pluto's pretty dim. But if you use, you know, binoculars, telescope, that kind of thing, you can pick up these more dim objects. Um, and that, uh, I said it's east, but I think it's going to be south. <laughs> Notes. Um, then Neptune and the moon are in conjunction. But that's um, that's also something, you know, use your telescope for. Um, the 25th of Mars. Uh, so, sorry 25th of november mars and, and the moon are in conjunction that's more east and uh moon is getting uh, is bigger then. so yeah look for that uh, the 27th uranus and the moon are in conjunction uranus is another one you, you want a telescope or binoculars for that's going to be looking east as well then we switch to the morning in the east for mercury and venus um november the 12th I'm going to have to take
0: your word for it that Mercury is a place.
1: I know. Sorry. (laughs) I love, I love looking for it because it's hard, you know, if you you do have kind of a low horizon, uh, absolutely.
0: Hiding behind mountains. Absolutely.
1: Try, try to find that. And you know, the great thing about November and December, um, a lot of people have more clear skies than normal because it's kind of colder. Um, So yeah, November 12th, that's going to be Venus and the moon in conjunction Basically, um, look east before sunrise. Yeah. Then yeah. on the 13th, the moon shifts down, and it's by Mercury. So those two are in conjunction yeah. again before sunrise in the, in the east. And we have a meteor shower still this month. Uh, the Leonids, uh, super early, though, like 4 a.m. on November the 17th, you want to look kind of east-southeast. It's basically near Leo.
0: So we how does that back. how does that balance up? We're, I mean, we've got a new moon coming up this weekend, so it's going to be pretty good, I guess. Uh, Quarter 17. moon, moon will go down. It should be okay. Yeah, it's
1: it's always a factor. I, I didn't look it up yeah. specifically for this one. Um, yeah. But we've got we've had two meteor showers this month, so something's going to work. And these aren't as as frequent as some of the other ones, but some of them are super bright. I mean, they're like.
0: I mean the. I mean we the Leonids are in my experience, the best meteor shower historically that I've ever seen when they're good. But, um, you know, I don't know if you, if you saw the one, do you remember the one back in, I think it was like 2003. There was like a Leonid meteor shower that was just off the hook. It was just, Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Some of these have a cycle.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're better at the one point and then they're kind of dimmer. And then again, at at the seven year mark, something like that. Um, I know one of these two yeah. this month was like that. Uh and then we have on November the thirtieth a partial penumbral lunar eclipse. And they don't really look eclipsed. Yeah, boring. Yeah, except for like at the at the kind of major part. Um, that's 145 AM for about an hour.
3: Yeah. Um, but that's going to be, you know, as the full moon's rising. Yeah. You can uh, start to it's watch It's going to get out. slightly darker. Right. <laughs> it's, not to see. it's not one of the really cool deep red ones. Yeah. No,
1: no. But I suppose if you took a series of photos, and I remember talking about that before too, you would kind of catch the, the dimming and then it brightening again. So you kind of see where that is and and yeah this this is a really great time if you're you're getting into this or you haven't been out lately take a look it's gonna be very very fun this month
0: (laughs) yeah i mean it's just this great combination of of a lot of planets close to each other um both in the evening and in the morning the moon making its way through it and the and the the planets getting and again jupiter saturn like like you I mean, want to be more organized. This is an event that happens. I mean, I'm going to say on the order of decades. Might even mean years. Years? I don't know. Like this is not, I... this is Venus transit level of excitement that you should be having to be able to see Jupiter and Saturn together in the eyepiece. So... I agree.
1: Totally. I'm, I've got a list here. I'll go ahead and, and add that to, you know, the video after it's been published.
0: Wonderful. Great. Awesome, thank you. Uh, all right. Oh, Amy, uh, you can close the Zoom window if you want. If you want to watch the show, that's totally fine. But you're also free to close the Zoom window if you want and, and enjoy the rest of your evening. We don't trap you. I just forgot to mention that before we started the show. Um, so your call, your call. If you want, it's
4: interesting. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Thanks.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, then stick around. Um, and uh, apparently, we are now live on the uh, on the internet. So all the people who. Um, <laughs> Who, who missed the beginning? Uh, we apologize. It's only in our memory now, but I'm also recording. It should it should be available after. I'm sure. All right. I see
3: it now. Yeah, that's what people are saying that they're able <laughs> to watch it. So that's great.
0: All right, uh, Brian,
2: what have you got for us? So this is a story about uh, Trojan asteroids that are. Uh, near Mars. And if you think of Trojan asteroids, you probably think of Jupiter because most of the Trojan asteroids are near Jupiter. And the reason you have Trojan asteroids is because of a kind of gravitational dance between the planet and the sun, because the planet is orbiting the sun, the gravitational pull between both of them and the rotation means that you get these kind of gravitational potholes on either side that are called Lagrange points. And the Earth has them, Mars has them, all the planets have them. But in the case of Mars, that means that, that about on 60 degrees ahead and 60 degrees behind where Mars is, there's this, these little gravitational potholes, and little asteroids tend to cluster there. So you get a little group of Trojans in front, I mean, we have Trojans in the back. And one of the things is, you know, where do these come from? And because Mars is close to the asteroid belt, you might say, well, maybe some of them strayed a little too close. They got trapped. And that's why you kind of get this debris field. Um, but if you look at what the chemical makeup of these Trojans are, then you can kind of identify them. And this is, this is an, a common thing where you look at, how the light is reflecting off of the surface of an object and what light actually reflects off that surface depends upon what the chemical and mineral composition of that object is. So you can actually identify some of the things that are, that make up that object by looking at the light reflecting off of it. So when you look at the Trojans for Mars, what what you get is that there's there's a group of them, uh, that are called the Eureka group. And the spectrum of light reflecting off of them looks very similar to the spectrum of light you'd expect from Mars. It's high in a, a mineral called olivine. And so the, the popular theory is that these Trojan asteroids are probably um, fragments from impacts on Mars that were thrown out and then happened to get caught in this gravitational well. And so they originated from Mars and, and impacts with other asteroids with Mars, which kind of makes sense because mm-hmm. it, it's the closest body to where these Trojan clusters are. So it kind of makes sense that that's where they would be clustered.
0: And doesn't that sort of also connect with the story of maybe where Phobos and Deimos came from, that there was some impact event that helped form them and also kicked out these Trojan asteroids into, the, into, that, into this orbit?
2: Right, that's that's the theory that kind of leans now. The earlier theory that they were, were that they were captured right. asteroids, but the impact idea seems to make a lot of sense. So, so yeah, all these types of things is that you know it's easy to throw debris off of Mars because it's a fairly small planet. It doesn't have a thick atmosphere, and because of these Lagrange points and interactions, it's easy to kind of capture them. So, so they were looking at the spectra of these, and there was one of them that has a name. That's only a number. It's it's 101429. You know, we come up with these great names. But they were looking at the spectrum of this one, and it isn't as similar to Mars as the other ones. So it's not part of the Eureka group. In other words, it's not from this common event if that's what would have caused them. What's really interesting though is that when you look at the spectrum of the mineral compound is different. And of the bodies that it matches best, the moon is the best candidate. So if you look at the, the spectrum of the surface of the moon and you look at the spectrum of this Trojan asteroid, they match up relatively well. Um, that's because it, it has a, a higher content of something called peroxine. And yeah, so you can see the, the, the spectrum there. They're reasonably close. So, So this kind of hints to the idea of, could this actually be, sourced from the Moon? Could there have been uh, an impact on the Moon that threw debris out towards Mars and one of these happened to get caught in the Lagrange point? Um, If that's the case, that would be kind of interesting because we know that fragments from different planets can cross. Uh, We have meteorites that have landed on Earth from Mars. So we know mm-hmm. that that actually happens. Invest. what's, yeah, I have a little fragment. Actually. Oh, do you? Okay. I have <laughs> a
3: fragment of Mars. It's so cool. Yeah. It's
2: like, it's not that big and 90. it's already run through the lab before I got it, but I don't care. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what's the thing is, is that when you have something from Mars, Mars has a low gravity and, and it's easy to get things off. And also it's easier to move things like asteroids inward than it is outward. Because you already have the energy to kind of move in. Gravitational interactions can kind of bring them inward. So that's why we have more drift from Mars to Earth. Um, Do we have drift from Earth to Mars? As far as we know, there isn't. But the moon has a small gravity. So it's possible that it could have gotten enough energy from some impact to get it out to the orbit of Mars. Um, And so that type of dynamic both ways is very interesting. You, I think, the one thing,
0: go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, like when we kind of imagine the Trojans, we imagine the, the bottom of this, this valley, like a, I don't know, like a lint trap that collects all this stuff, but it's actually a, an area that things orbit around. So you're not necessarily going to have, you know, it's, <clears throat> you know, things, there's nothing actually down at the very bottom of the gravity well of the, of the L4, L5 point. It's, right. it's just that right. it's a place that things are able to to orbit. But I mean, what kinds of gravitational shenanigans would have had to have happened to get a chunk of the moon into the Martian Lagrange point?
2: So you would have had to hit the moon with, in such a way that fragments would have actually quite a bit of energy. They would have to escape the gravity of the moon and since there are no large bodies in between they might have swung they might have gotten a flyby effect from the earth but they had to have enough energy to go outwards and then they had to interact with mars in such a way that it didn't just fling past you know you can you can fling something out there but then it also has to have just the right trajectory so that it it slows down to stay in one of the lagrange points so so one of the things that can happen is you could go through a lagrange point and and just keep going. Mm-hmm. You kind of speed up as you went into the dip and then slowed down and you just kept going. If you have too much energy, you can't do that. So it tends to be things that are fairly slow relative to Mars. So if you're kind of crossing the Martian orbit with a slow speed, well then relative to that little dip, you now are kind of stuck. So so it's that idea that you get that lint trap. Yeah. Right, couldn't, couldn't right the
1: sun be pushing stuff like you know the solar sail concept
2: with with small things yeah so you get you can have the solar wind interactions um but they get weaker as you get further out
0: uh, and the, so it's and, it's and on the flip side i mean you've it's got the, you've got the interactions of jupiter which is jiggling the asteroid belt shifting stuff inward which is where we get all of our all of our right. um near earth objects, but to, to imagine something going in the opposite direction, going outward is, is kind of fascinating. Right. You have to have enough energy
2: to do that because of the, the gravitational perturbations between different objects, usually one of them loses. Like one will gain a little bit of energy, but the other one will lose a little bit of energy. So that one moves inward. And then when it interacts again, one of those loses. So you kind of have a 50% chance every time to move inward and you're not going back outwards. Right, right, right. So It's it's kind of hard to go uphill, as it were.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny when you, like, we imagine when we look at the solar system, we look at the sun and we look at the planets going around, it's like a record player or whatever. And we kind of imagine, like, something shifting from one racetrack to another in this, you know, in these various orbits. But it is a hill to go from the earth out to Mars, you are climbing right. a mountain to get there. And then to go past that, you're climbing a mountain. And so it is, it does require a lot of energy and yet right. the perfect amount. I wonder how much of this material, I mean, these, these Lagrange points are such a fascinating place. And I, and that's why NASA's got its Lucy mission because you can do on one trajectory, go past eight different objects in the two Jupiter Trojan points, um, but I just wonder if you could build some kind of thing that that s- just hung out in one of the Trojan points, just orbiting around and around and around, and just making flyby after flyby after flyby. I mean, there's a lot of interesting I mean, lint we've, collected. We've done that with some
2: satellites where we do with Earth Lagrange points. Yeah, so we'll, we'll plant satellites near there um, because it it tends to keep them in, in a regional spot. But you know, I mean, Mars has a The Lagrange points of Mars are relatively small Mm -hmm. so because it it depends upon the mass of the planet for how strong these are. That's why Jupiter has most of them because Jupiter is a huge planet. So its Lagrange potholes are are actually pretty big. They're pretty strong.
0: Well, there's as much material in Jupiter's uh, L4 and L5 point as the asteroid belt. Right. It's like a whole other asteroid belt. Yep. that people don't even realize. So, wow. yeah, absolutely fascinating, Brian. Thank you so much. Sure. All right, Molly, your turn. What have you got for us?
3: All right. Um, so getting into, uh, some even more sciencey things. Um, so, I uh, last, let's see, when was it last Thursday, a paper was published in, in the journal nature, which is a kind of the premier science journal, uh, that a fast radio burst was detected within our own galaxy, and that's the the new part is that it's within our galaxies. Most of the fast radio bursts we have observed have been in other galaxies. So, what is a fast radio burst? It's a short duration pulse of a really strong radio signal, and we don't exactly know what causes them yet. And although we're with the recent one that we just got, Milky Way, now we have a better idea of of um, what type of object causes them, even if we don't know exactly how that object is causing them. So, uh, and then of course, uh, radio, as a reminder, is really just long wavelength and low energy light, but these sources shine a lot of it. So it's like having a um, a really bright flood lamp instead of a, a dim. Um, reading light or something like that. It's the same wavelength, but much, much, much brighter than other radio sources. Um, it's uh, fast radio bursts put out so much energy, even though it's it's low energy light, but it puts out so much of it that the the average fast radio burst outputs as much energy in one one thousandth of a second as the sun does in three days. <laughs> it's a lot of energy <laughs> in a very short period of time. Right. So uh, the um, a lot of fast radio bursts are are not repeating, although some of them do repeat, like there's one that was discovered in 2018 that pulses every 16.35 days on the, on the dot. And that one lies in a galaxy about 450 million light years away. Some of the fast radio bursts we've seen have been even further away in galaxies billions of light years away. So some ideas of what might cause these fast radio bursts are um, potentially a rapidly rotating neutron star black hole binary system. Uh, could also be uh, compact object mergers. So like that's like, so neutron star and a black hole merger is a type of compact object merger, but there's there's other types as well, like two black holes and two neutron stars and things like that.
0: But I guess the mystery with those is you would also expect to potentially see the radiation in some other part of the spectrum as well. Like if, like, as we saw with the Killanova, we detect the gravitational wave merger, but we also detected the the flash of X rays and 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 visible light from that collision. But we're only seeing this flash of radio waves, right?
3: Well, in this case, the other special thing about this new discovery was that we didn't only see the radio signal; we actually saw the X ray signal too, um, and that's uh, that's how we were able to uh, the, the scientists who are working on on, on this project were able to trace. Uh, this fast radio burst to a specific magnetar, which they've not been able to do before when it's been in other galaxies and we can't resolve individual magnetars. So um, in this particular one, it, they'd been observing it in uh, X-ray telescopes for the prior 12 or twelve hours or so because it had been acting up. It was spitting out all kinds of, of X-ray bursts over like a half second or a second, these, these pretty short bursts. Uh, And then the and this was some NASA X-ray telescopes that were observing this and then uh, 13 hours later, when it was on the other side of the Earth, um, the uh, several European, Chinese and Russian X-ray telescopes picked up a a really short, a short pulse that was only a half a second long of X-rays. And then at the same time, two radio telescopes picked up uh, a millisecond long burst so one one thousandth of a second of a radio burst from the same source so that that discovery has meant that now we're we're pretty sure that at least some fast radio bursts come from magnetars now what is a, a magnetar it is uh it's a type of neutron star and our neutron star is a is a very dense star left over from a supernova where the the core has collapsed and has been compressed so much under gravity that the material of the star of the neutron star is actually as dense as an atomic nucleus if you had a matchbox full of neutron star material it weighs 3 it would weigh 3 billion tons <laughs> here on earth <laughs> neutron stars are incredibly dense they're only 6 miles across and yet they're also one and a half times the mass of the sun compressed into a much, 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 much smaller space. And magnetars have really strong magnetic fields around them. And sometimes they're spinning and those magnetic fields are moving like like a lighthouse and those are pulsars. But the magnetic field is so strong. it's um, So it's, uh, what did I put down? It can be between uh, 1 billion Let's see. No, it's actually one one to one hundred trillion Tesla. Right. which is a unit of a measure of, of magnets, um, of uh, magnetism, which compared to the Earth, the Earth has an average uh, magnetic field strength of 25 micro Tesla, which is 1, right. 1, uh, 25 millionths of a Tesla. So <laughs> as a way to kind of like, uh, in, like a strong magnet on Earth is one to 10 Tesla. And yet this, this neutron star has a magnetic field of trillions of, of Tesla, which is like, Crazy.
0: <laughs> so definitely don't bring your hard drive too close. Don't yeah. bring your too close. <laughs> They're definitely getting demagnetized.
3: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um and so based on on this observation, like is it like the perfect fast radio burst? Like does it really match the sign the signature of the fast radio burst that that are being collected up until this point? Like can we yes, do, can so, we just say definitively that's it? Fast radio yes, so, so, are magnetars.
3: Uh, at least at least some of them are. Some of uh, them are. So the uh, the the research um, that like when they when they analyzed the uh, the dispersion of the of the radio signals across multiple frequencies and looked at the brightness of of that source versus its distance because we have a rough estimate of how far away this magnetar is somewhere between fourteen and thirty thousand light years away. It looks just like a fast radio burst would. From a more distant galaxy, which uh, we've we've measured many times before, so uh, it's it's for sure a fast radio burst that's the same type as the ones in these other galaxies. Right. And uh, because it matches up with this known magnetar, then we can say that uh, at least at least some fast radio bursts come from magnetars.
0: Can do we have any idea of the mechanism that's actually causing the burst part?
3: Not that I saw when I was doing research on, on the article. Um, that still remains largely unknown what the actual mechanism is for producing this fast radio burst. Uh,
0: Brian, I don't know if you have any, any additional info on that.
2: Well, right now, the leading idea is some type of magnetic snap. So just like with a solar flare, you get, this, you, you get this kind of twisting of the magnetic field. And then when it realigns, it snaps into place. And you get this burst of energy um the the difficulty with that is that while well, the sun is is very fluid it has very different layers neutron stars at least so we thought don't, and so that type of we're not sure how you would get that twisting that would cause the the rapid snap we know that that could produce that level of energy, but how it would twist into place is is very speculative
0: right right um i uh so so, um, Molly, you had another story as well. So why don't we go to go to that while we still have a little bit of time left? But that is that is super cool. It just to sort of finish this up. It it you know, there's a lot of these big mysteries. There's dark matter. There's dark energy. There's like why do we dream? You know, there's all these big mysteries that we may not ever find out the answer. But this idea of fast radio bursts, it feels like one that is in our grasp. Like it showed up within the last decade or so very confusing very mysterious people starting to point their telescopes at it and get to the bottom of this and it's quite i don't know it feels very satisfying to see an answer come together in in a reasonable amount of time as opposed to just a whole bunch of people just scratching their head and going like i don't know
3: Yeah, the the first one was just discovered in in 2007 and they estimate that um i think i read somewhere they estimate that there's three per day happening somewhere in the in the observable universe um so they're they're relatively common events uh (laughs) but uh but yeah it is really cool that uh it's it's a mystery that we're solving pretty rapidly uh since since discovery initially
0: and we have the greatest uh, observatory uh, to, to catch them, which is the Chime Observatory here in Canada, just a few hundred kilometers yeah, actually, from where I live. Yeah, actually, that's
3: one of the two that that measured yeah. the signal was the Chime Observatory, uh, which is, uh, for people unfamiliar, it's a series of four uh, basically half-pipe uh, radio dishes, more or less, that are, that are on the ground. That um, uh, They're uh, 330 feet long and 65 feet wide. And they observe in the 400 to 800 megahertz radio band.
0: Yeah, you can get some sweet air on those. Um, <laughs> if
3: They weren't like all slats. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah.
0: yeah. You got to get a good snowfall, good ice, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the other story quickly about Europa glowing in the dark.
3: Yeah, okay. So, uh, so Europa is one of Jupiter's 79 moons and it's the smallest of the four Galilean moons, the ones that you can see really easily with a pair of binoculars or a telescope. And it's the sixth largest moon in the solar system, and it's only a little bit smaller than our own moon. Now, Europa is a very fascinating moon to begin with because it's extremely smooth, and its surface is made of, of silicates and um, and water ice. And because it is so smooth and not uh, asteroid or, or uh, meteor pockmarked and and other variations it's thought that it has a subsurface ocean made of water i'm not talking like a methane ocean i'm talking a water ocean that uh, because of and it's it's kept in a water state because there's heating from from tidal poles and from um i like i like the like tidal poles from from jupiter and um and tectonic activity and things like that so there is there's is potentially liquid water on uh, just underneath the surface of the moon. Now, um, Jupiter has a, an extremely high uh, radiation fields uh, caused by lots of charged particles being accelerated in its in its intense magnetic field. And we know that when you uh, irradiate a lot of uh, molecular compounds and, and atoms with, with radiation, then they'll continue to glow afterwards, re-emitting that light in uh, sometimes a visible light. And we know uh, a lot of salty compounds. We know their colors very well uh, that, that uh, they would exhibit from radiation. The, the new piece with this is that uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, somebody thought to try it on, on salty ice like you would find on the surface of Europa with a, um, like Epsom salt and table salt and, and uh, salt compounds you might find on the surface there with the, with the briny ice and they did glow like they expected but the glow was actually a different color a different a different spectral composition than their liquid forms which was new and unexpected and uh because of that of that uh of that surface ice on europa they think that the night side of of europa is gl- might be glowing in white or green or blue or colors that they mm. saw from bombarding the the ice with radiation which is really cool and uh, the the Europa Clipper mission that's set to launch in 2025 will be able to observe this potentially among many other things it's going to observe about europa
0: really interesting um Well, we've uh, reached the end of our show, so um, Molly, you're on my screen, so why don't you go first and let people know uh, where they can find out more and what you're working on?
3: Yes, so um, I uh, uh, do a lot of astrophotography, so you can find my astrophotography stuff at astronomolly.com. Uh, I will at some point be posting on there some of my more scientific pursuits as well. I've been doing a lot of variable star astronomy recently. This is all in my in my amateur capacity. uh, (laughs) As opposed to the science I'm doing uh, for my actual PhD, which I don't really have much written up on yet. Um, The Astronomali.com or on Facebook as Astronomali Images or on Instagram's Astronomolly underscore images.
0: You're one of the first uh, academic astronomers I've ever met who actually knows her way around the night sky.
3: (laughs) Yeah. You know, a lot of uh, like a lot of um, uh, astronomers who are professionals and scientists, they're not sitting out there operating their telescope and looking at star charts and uh, stuff like that. They're kind of existing in a, in a different area of the science. So um, yeah, it's kind of a unique position. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Brian, what are you working on?
2: Um, I'm working on stuff for NRAO mostly right now. And uh, in terms of where you can find me, you can always find me at my website, which is briancobreline.com or on Twitter at briancobreline. Uh, the name's unusual enough that I'm pretty much easy to find.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Um, and lots of great stories for Universe today, like this one you just talked about. Yeah. Um, Pam.
1: Very cool. I'm going to show this because my book never shows up. I wrote this book. It's uh, your amazing anybody explore space now book. 15 simple ways to personally and directly participate in space exploration right now. Uh, we have a, a show on Friday nights now. We've been doing it for a couple months. Jeff and I will talk about a couple topics and basically say what's going to happen in the night sky, like uh, like I talked about here. And uh, we started having guests. We had a really good time with our buddy Cliff Butson from Australia. And we have one already scheduled for later this month. And we're just having a lot of fun talking to regular folks about the things they're doing. And um, the next person, Christina, she's fairly new at it. And I'm like, well, this is great because, you know, I've been at it since 1991. And I don't necessarily remember how it was to be new. So it's going to be really exciting to talk to her and find out from her perspective, what kinds of things would be really interesting to someone who's very new at it. I just love that Molly is an observer. <laughs> Some of them have said, I've never looked through a telescope, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm like, but you're missing so much cool stuff.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, it's so funny to, to have that conversation with, with professional astronomers and you, it starts to dawn on you that they don't know their way around the sky.
1: There's nothing quite like seeing the, the moons of Jupiter or the yep. the rings around Saturn for yourself, looking through a telescope. Totally. You and it's a very intimate thing and it's a very exciting thing. And I love watching people when they're, Oh my God, is
3: that a sticker on the end?
1: Yeah, When they see yeah. Saturn
0: for the yeah. first time. Yeah. Have
3: really. you heard that Molly? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, my uh, eight inch McCassegrain pulls down fantastic views, especially of Saturn and uh, when the seeing is really good, people are just amazed. And I've even thought like that looks like a picture. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But there's something quite like like the the realization that photons that have been traveling for tens of millions of years and across tens of millions of light years of space that were emitted by some star ten million years ago are being absorbed into your particular retina like that's just a completely magical feeling that is uh not even though looking at the objects in astrophotography lends its own beauty uh it's really a special experience
1: totally agree yeah if you're ever in our area come to uh come to our site we can see the milky way from from i mean we're really close to la but i can still see the milky way out at our reserving site it's really neat like anybody from la can just drive out and take a look it's so cool that's
0: That's great All right. Uh, Well, I'm going to put everybody back on the screen uh, so we can all say goodbye. Um, The next thing that's coming up, of course, we've got the virtual star party. Actually, we've got Astronomy Cast on Friday. We've got the virtual star party on Saturday. Remember the earlier time, 7 uh, p.m. Next week on my channel, I'm going to be interviewing Chris Carr, who's one of the co-hosts on the Weekly Space Hangout. So... Uh, we'll get a chance to go deep into his background, extra galactic astronomy, what he's researching, and, uh, hopefully you'll be able to sort of learn a lot more about him as a scientist and journalist. All right. Sounds cool. Everybody's up on the... Where's everybody? There we all are. All right. So thank you, everybody. If anybody's actually watching this, uh, thank you for for joining us. Thank you for uh, thanks to Nancy and the rest of the moderators who had a very easy job this time around. Thanks to my co-hosts. Uh, And our special guest, we really appreciate uh, everybody. Hopefully, I won't have to upload this after the fact. It'll just work, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Let me know if it's busted, if the first part of it is broken, because you definitely are going to want to go back and watch the interview. All right, thank you, everybody. And we will see all of you next week.